0: Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and hope you enjoy the podcast. In light of the recent rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, We dedicated this podcast to the importance of mental health within the Asian American Pacific Islander community. I was delighted to spend time on the podcast with Dr. Marsha Liu, who is a licensed counselling psychologist. Dr. Liu currently runs a private psychotherapy practice and leads a mental health program at Hunter College. Her research and clinical interests focus on mental health policy, gender and race-related stress, racial identity, and trauma. She is an active member of the Asian American Psychological Association. Dr. Liu was born in New York before moving to Maryland. She received her BA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, her MA at NYU, and her doctorate in counseling psychology from Boston College. In this episode, you'll learn about why Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are three times less likely to seek mental health services, the importance of seeking out community support and whether seeking the help of a professional therapist could make sense for you. I hope everybody's doing okay during these times and I hope you find my interview with Dr. Marsha Liu helpful. Hi, Dr. Liu. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: So now is uh, quite a challenging period for the Asian American uh, Pacific Islander community, um, given the rise of a lot of anti Asian hate crimes that, you know, in some ways kind of started um, a year ago when the pandemic started to take over the world. Nice. And of late, there's been quite a lot of reported incidents of violence targeting Asians. Um, the shooting in Atlanta that happened last week. Um, and even this weekend during demonstrations in New York City, I was just reading it this morning, people of Asian descent being attacked when they're going to protest about this. Right. And it was it's almost unbelievable and disappointing coming from an Asian uh, Canadian, but I also identify as Asian American having lived in New York. And then um, also given what has been happening to think that at a protest, a woman could have her sign broken and um, being verbally attacked when she was going to a protest with her seven-year-old daughter. Just such a, um, you know, kind of speechless um, time that we're living in. So, wanted to, you know, start up by asking you as an Asian American living in New York, how have you been holding up in mm-hmm. light of the recent events?
1: Mm, thanks for asking. Um, I think that it's last week in particular. It's been it's been a rough time. Um, even as, even as, especially as a psychologist, I feel like I'm a lot of times asking myself, okay, where are you at? How are you feeling today? What's going on? And, and I talk about racial trauma a lot within my work, but when you realize it's actually happening to me right now, I just noticed feeling like um, dissociating, feeling tearful, feeling infuriated, feeling numb, um, all these different types of trauma reactions In trying to organize like what's happening. It's really, it's both, sure, we can talk about this from a historical point of view and we can kind of intellectualize about it, but it's also, it's such an emotional experience. And um, I think I was just sort of of surprised at my own reaction of like, wow, my body is really responding to this because this is really horrifying. Um, And it's a lot to hold that kind of fear, that kind of vigilance. I think it's been baking in our bodies for a while now. This last year has been quite hard um and we don't really have an opportunity to articulate about it that much so i do appreciate just starting with you that's where we start with our bodies
0: and there there's a a great book called uh the body keeps a score and so for those who aren't as familiar with the connection between emotions psychology and our physical bodies could you explain a little bit more about um the science and research behind that
1: yeah definitely So whenever a traumatizing event happens, which um, it could be anything where we feel like our lives are at stake or somebody close to us, their lives are at stake. Um, Our body goes into like a fight or flight. There's more complex ways to talk about it, but um, our bodies want to react, you know, either to flee it or to, to fight it in the moment. And not only does this mean like emotions like fear or anger or preparation to fight or terror and fleeing, but our physical bodies will start sweating profusely or we'll start getting our adrenaline starts pumping or we're, we're getting ready to like run away um for how trauma kind of works with our bodies a lot of times especially for asian americans who experience a lot of somatic symptoms so a lot of physical manifestations of stress this can look like having headaches having digestive issues having diarrhea or constipation having back aches having insomnia feeling um like flushing a lot where you feel like really warm um these are all ways that we experience racial trauma and our body. A lot of times we don't, we might not register that, you know, it's emotionally something's happening, but our physical bodies will try to tell us, they'll try to signal us that something is happening. I mean, and the, the, the thing about racial trauma, like these events that we we're talking about this last year, is that it doesn't have to actually happen to you. You don't actually have to be the, um, the victim or the survivor of a traumatic incident. It just has to look it has to happen to somebody who looks like you that's all and there's all this research that shows that that kind of vicarious experience of trauma has the same traumatic impact on your physical and emotional health as it would has it as if it happened to you yourself um yeah it's a lot mm,
0: yeah and I, I i do think that you know that is one of the um gifts of being a human being right which is the ability to sympathize and empathize with people who we might not even know so that explains a lot for us who might not be directly impacted by the recent hate crimes but we read about it we see somebody who looks like us or um, hear about somebody who could be our sister brother grandma uh, partner and it impacts us just like it could have if it directly um uh targeted us personally um, exactly. yeah so we'd love to just hear a little bit more about um what have you have you noticed any uh like noticeable increase in the people seeking your support so r- right now you run a private psychotherapy practice and you also lead mental health initiatives at hunter college so wanted to see are you actually seeing this um firsthand in terms of people seeking more help
1: yeah i mean i think um Uh, first starting with the having the private psychotherapy practice, a lot of people have been using COVID as an opportunity to do some reflecting and there's, it's a rich time for therapy. We're all stuck in our houses and introspecting a lot on our lives. Um, I think in terms of my Asian American clients, they've talked a lot about how stressful this year has been and just the, just the disgust and the anger and the terror um, and the worry. And, and I think a lot about being frustrated that this hasn't been talked about that much in the in the mainstream news um, over the last year. and until now there's sort of this actual moment that's kind of rising, um, which feels really important and also for me, like so precious. like we don't want to mess this up. We want to make sure people really know our story and and not that there's just one story, but we've been so invisible in the dialogue for so long. And then with my students at Hunter, so so I work as part of this project called the Hunter College andeasy project, which is, particular program that's focusing on the needs of Asian American students there, undergraduate students, of which there are 5000 of them. So 33% of Hunter identifies as Asian American. And tons of my students have really, there's been this outpouring of just need and frustration and a desire for dialogue, a desire to share space with other Asian Americans. And we're of course, like so diverse as a community Southeast Asian, South Asians, East Asians, Pacific Islanders, we're like loosely connected as a community, we have such different histories, such different cultures, but there is this sense of solidarity that as a group, we've been treated historically um, as outsiders and as threats and as invisible, Um, definitely as model minorities um, and used as this wedge uh, between white and black and Latino um, communities. And this real sense of wanting to understand, chew through it and talk about it more. Um, I think students really have been just really ready for this conversation in mm-hmm. some ways.
0: And is it, would you say that this is pretty historic, at least given your your history working um, in mental health, specifically in the AAPI community, is this a, quite a watershed
1: moment from what you're seeing? That's that's the word. I was like, what's the word, catchment watershed. Yes, <laughs> this does feel like this is that moment. Um, I think that for me, part of what's been so interesting is that my non-Asian community has been checking in on me so much in the last. And I feel like that also, part of me feels like we owe such a debt of gratitude to the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Liberation movement generally that there's a lot of teaching that happened last summer about check in on your friends, check in on your friends of color. And I feel like a lot of people learned like, oh, when a hate crime is happening against Asian American women, I should check in on my close friend and see, just let them know that I'm thinking about them. No, no, like, you know, not to overwhelm them, but um, that's one of the parts that I feel like this dialogue is different. It's it's not just Asian Americans that are talking about it.
0: Yeah, and it big, big credit to the BLM movement because it did start to initiate the um, consciousness and also just the awareness of what is allyship, right? Absolutely. Just because you don't look like the person who's being perpetrated against doesn't mean you don't have a role. And, exactly. you know, being on the other side like last summer is like, what should, what can I do? Right. What can it and to your point, sometimes it really is just checking in with the people that you know from that mm-hmm. community to be like, hey, are you are you doing OK? Are you yeah. doing OK as a human being, not as a colleague, not as a yeah. spouse, not as a friend, but mm-hmm. are you doing OK as a human? So it's great That's to cool. to hear that that is has also um, been happening with the AAPI
1: community. Yes, for sure.
0: Um, would love to also just get your perspective on um, AAPIs seeking mental health and working with um, therapists to help them process and, and chew through some of the problems. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit more about, um, number one, just like the general stigma of seeking mental health support um, yeah. by the Asian American community? And then secondly, um, some advice or tips that you you might have for those who've actually never worked with a professional in the past. Yeah,
1: for sure. This is like, um, uh, this is such a hard thing about our community. We are generally, again, I don't want to be too generalizable, um, like we're not a monolithic community. But traditionally, um, there's been so much shame and stigma associated with having any kind of mental health struggle. If you do have a mental health struggle, you shouldn't talk about it. You know, you don't want to burden your loved ones with it. It's a very kind of collectivistic way that we think about our communities. Um, My pain would then mean my mother's pain, you know, or my mother's pain becomes my pain. Um, So we're all trying to protect each other from wanting to experience any harm, which is like a truly loving thing. Um, But it ends up also really isolating ourselves in this way where we're all kind of suffering on our own without actually acknowledging what's going on. Now, this is not true for every family, but a lot of times there's been this intergenerational passed down message that it's honorable to do the struggle on your own, that that's how you protect other people um, and to not have these conversations. I mean, in the, I think in the most kind of reductive way of talking about it, some people might think, well, you know, we don't wanna bring shame upon our family. We don't want other people in the community to know that there's something going on with one of our family members. So we just don't talk about it. We don't talk about it amongst ourselves and we certainly don't talk about it across, you know, between, between friends um and at the same time what's so wild about this to me is that the idea of wellness and stress reduction and healing and living a meaningful life these are like inherent to cultural and religious beliefs in all of our communities for like thousands of years like the idea of mindfulness and 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 the beliefs of buddhism and hinduism and islam like these are all things that that have been deeply baked into our cultures for so long. I think that the concept of mental health though is such like associated at with, with this white Western American kind of idea and that it's about being crazy. Um, so a lot of my work with students and in my private practice is around normalizing, like all of us go through these normal fluctuations of ups and downs and it does not mean you're crazy. It does not mean there's anything wrong with you. This is the human experience um, if we could talk about how hard it is sometimes when we're having a bad day or truly just a struggle of a day, it can be alleviating and that we we know that we're not we're not on our own in this. Um, so so I think like there's a lot of data showing Asian Americans are very unlikely to go seek out a therapist because of the stigma. It is effective. People think that well, I don't want to bring it up, you know, so people don't judge me, so I won't talk about it. And then other people are like, well, they're not talking about it, so I'm not going to bring it up. Stigma really begets more stigma. Um, And um, we know that college um, Asian American college students, for example, are the least likely racial ethnic group that will go see a therapist. Um, And this has major consequences. Asian American young women are um, particularly susceptible to suicide, as well as Asian American elderly women have the highest rate of suicide amongst any racial ethnic group of that of that age demographic. So we know that there's like a lot of suffering happening and it's not really, it's not really going anywhere. Um, uh, and this question of actually turning it on its head that this is an available resource. It doesn't have to be for everybody, but therapy can be one available resource. Um, I think it's like a, a it's becoming less stigmatized, but, uh, through these conversations. Um, but I think there's a lot of fear, you know, like, is this therapist really gonna understand me? I think that's just for like white rich people. That's not for us. That's not what we do. I don't know anybody who's an Asian therapist. How could they possibly understand my story? Um,
0: Which is why I think, you know, even having people like you who look like us and yeah. are on the other side of the table, that is also yeah. a great first, great step, right? If you can yeah. see it, you can be it. And also that idea of um being able to sympathize and empathize with who you're working with is also super helpful
1: yeah for sure there's a lot of research that's on like the benefits of having a therapist who's not from your your racial ethnic background Mm. it's really interesting so i think a lot of times we just assume well you look like me i bet that you're chinese and you have the same values and your parents immigrated (laughs) here with the same things and it's like actually none of those things are true we're very different um so a lot of times in a in a cross-racial group you might actually ask for, you might over explain things that you would just assume, you know, like this person understands. And if you have the same racial ethnic background as your therapist, one thing I think that's the most important though, is that yes, the therapist has to have some credibility for us to really be willing to work with them. We need, we need them to kind of earn our trust in some way. And thinking about what that means to you, does it mean that they were trained in a certain way? Does it mean that they're from a particular ethnic background? Does it mean that they're they have a, an attachment to the immigrant experience. What is it for you that helps you believe that this person is going to be useful for your life is a good question. And the second thing is to be super overt about asking for what you need. Um, so if you're working with somebody that's not Asian American to say, you know, have you worked with Asian Americans before? What's your, um, what's your take on that? If you're a queer person also, are, do you identify as queer? I'm wondering, you know, like how you think about that. If I identify as queer, how do you think about queerness as well as the Asian American experience? These are all things that you have not just permission, but we wish you to be absolutely entitled to ask because this is the only way that's going to actually work. You know, for you to actually believe that this person ha- has a perspective that you have, that you can feel safe with and trusting of, um, mm. and that you respect. Mm.
0: So, in the work that you do right now with HCap at Hunter College, um,
1: yeah.
0: do you find the solutions actually vary? specifically for that community? Or is it much more about bringing together the community, creating that sense of uh, you know psychological safety so that um, you're more likely to have folks um, be comfortable reaching out? Or is it a bit about both the solution being tailored and also the community being um, more specific to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders?
1: Do you think Justin, like the solutions based on like the solutions to stigma or the solutions to mental health stress?
0: But yeah, the the latter, the solutions yeah. or or tactics or even the way that you work with clients would be different given that they come from yeah. a specific uh, ethnicity or community.
1: Yeah, I think that um, it's interesting. A lot of times we think about therapy as the, the gold. I mean, I'm seeing this as a therapist as like the absolute solution for all. And it's just starting with, I mean, that kind of rigid, obviously, stint, likely hyperbolic standpoint is not going to work, um, first of all, A lot of students don't have the time for therapy, they're working multiple jobs, Um, they're they're supporting other people besides themselves, they're also in college, but also their insurance oftentimes tends to, there are two issues here. One, a lot of people's insurance does not provide that much in the way of psychotherapy benefits and so there's a limit there. There's also this sense of um, a lot of practitioners not accepting insurance. This is also a problem from a public health point of view Um, The third part is that for our Asian American students, they are very concerned that there's going to be an itemized bill that's going to be sent to the house that their parents are going to be able to see. And because of the stigma and because of this, you know, intergenerational messaging that's saying you should never go do this. um, It feels like so scary to imagine, you know, is there going to be a diagnosis? It's going to say psychotherapy. What, Mm -hmm. what can I do about this? So one of our, One of our initiatives with HCAP is to find, we'll promote therapy for sure, but it's really to leverage the use of the community itself to be kind of healers for each other. Students are willing to come to a space where they can talk about family issues, where they can talk about stress, um, about performing, where they can talk about anti-blackness within the Asian American community, because that seems like, sure, it's just a student activity. Going to see a therapist feels like just so much of a, it's, it's such a high bar to reach and it, you have to get through all these stigma stigma hurdles that kind of leveraging instead themselves to be the resources for each other has been a much more effective, I think, and, um, and, um, and honestly, a, a healing um, intervention for our students. Um, they seem to really enjoy being supported and knowing that it, they're not on their own in these journeys.
0: Mm, that's totally true. And I think how I... Um, relate that to my current um, situation is I'm part of the Asian Googler network. And it's oh, yeah. it's exactly the same thing. It's all self-organized. It's run by, you know, fellow Googlers. We yeah. decide what to talk about, bring in speakers, but yeah. it is really just helpful to have um, people in the same community to yes. as peers to converse with, not having a hierarchical type relationship. Exactly. Um, so totally hear you on that. Um, when, when do you think it makes sense for somebody to start exploring working with a professional therapist?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I think at its most basic, if you feel like symptoms like um, um, having a low mood or being so nervous all the time that you can't really think about other things, when these, these symptoms start to get disruptive, especially in more than one area of your life, so maybe with your friends or with your spouse or with your children, but also at work, you know, or also, um, in a third other, in your personal life in another way, if you notice that in these different arenas, these symptoms are actually stopping you from being able to enjoy things that you usually enjoy, get the amount of work done that you're usually are required to, um, connect or feel like, you know, like, um, be able to experience joy with your friends, um, or with your family. I think that these are, these are like, these are the most telltale signs like, okay, I think I, I need some more support here. Um, I think there's this idea that therapy is just where you go and whine and complain and that's all it is. You know, to somebody, you pay somebody a zillion dollars for that. It can be extremely constructive um, for just figuring out like a plan. You know, what's what's getting in your way right now? How are you getting in your own way? And uh, one of the hard things about the stigma thing with for Asian American clients is that we usually don't go until ah, there's a there's a saying in Hindi, um, you wait until the water crosses your head. Only then do you actually go see seek help until you're actually drowning. You know, as a result, usually Asian Americans who end up going to see somebody like a therapist, their symptoms are much more severe. They've been they're coming in a crisis, which is not the ideal time to actually start treatment. Just like treating stage four cancer is so much harder than treating stage one cancer. This thing has been developing for a long time and it's a lot more. I mean, it's certainly therapy can be extremely effective at that point. But I think we really give ourselves a hard time as a community thinking like, well, my parents sacrificed so much or I'm just nervous about this one. It's not that big of a deal. I, I certainly don't want to think of about myself as a patient. Um, so try to give yourself kind of the, get yourself off the hook on this, you know, like you have to mm. actually be there with that support. It's
0: definitely for you. That's such a good um, way to think about it. And mm-hmm. I am grateful that in this generation, we think we are now starting to think about health much more holistically, right? Yes. before far very much about physical health, what you can see going to the gym. But mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, not just specifically with um, the recent events, but in the last few years, um, the definition of health has been much more broad, broadened and now includes mental health, but it is a great analogy to think about it. Like, you know, you don't want to wait till you have to go to the ER to to see somebody to help you. It should be an ongoing thing and view it to be much more about preventative measures as opposed to, you know, crisis management. Exactly.
1: I think like, issues like i don't have a great self-esteem like a lot of times i'm i'm really self-doubting or my relationship with my spouse is just like i can't really communicate exactly what i need but i'm feeling a little bit dissatisfied like these are all absolutely 100 worthy reasons to go to see a therapist and it's perfect that's a perfect these are the perfect issues quote to be like really um to bring up to be bringing up with somebody
0: and i think like you mentioned earlier whether or not one chooses or believes that, um, let's say, an, a- an Asian-American psychologist would sure. fit them is, is totally up to them. And you wouldn't necessarily say that that's a better fit for
1: 100%. an Asian than others,
0: right? Really depends Absolutely. on what you want. Yeah.
1: Because some people, it's interesting, some people really don't want to uh, meet with Asian-American. They're <laughs> well, give me away. <laughs> there have been, um, There's there, I used to work at um in college counseling centers, and a lot of times counselors would offer bilingual services. Mm -hmm. And people would actually choose to speak in English rather than their their language of origin because it it was a little bit more disconnected, it felt less emotional having to go through the filtration translation mechanism in their brain. Um, which is fine, everybody the therapist's job is to meet you where you're at. I do Mm want to note that one totally, um, I want to really encourage people also who want to talk about being Asian, that that is a wonderful reason to go start talking to a therapist, exploring that Asian American identity. I mean, I think that it has been such an invisible identity for so long and we've been through a lot. There's been a lot of trying to invisibilize us and a lot of, I know myself really struggled with internalized racism for a lot of my life and trying to eradicate that and trying to actually develop this really healthy, wonderful, like sense of being asian as a bonus it's a it's a gift that i get to i get to be asian this is very sandra O, oh, but um you know it's just an honor versus oh this is a burden or this is a way that i'm just constantly have to, having to explain myself to these people who don't understand me um that's something that has been really beneficial for me in my own work and i really encourage people as well so that's hmm. legitimate and
0: i think on that like it really has been I think, a period of pride for a lot of Asian-Americans and um, Canadian. But um, you know, seeing portrayal and positive portrayal in the media, yes. uh, popular culture, sports, all that stuff. So I, I do feel like mm-hmm. now has been some of the best times to to be Asian than yeah, ever. Yeah, um, and yeah. we have a lot of really great things to look at. Um, nice. Would love to, to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit more about you and your background. Yeah. Um, could you share a little bit more about how you ended up um, studying and ultimately practicing in psychology
1: yeah for sure um let's see so i grew up in maryland i was born in long island don't really talk about that i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) i lived there for two years um, with my family and then we moved down to maryland Um, my parents are chinese immigrants but interestingly this is like very diasporic my my mom really grew up in south korea and my dad grew up in macau so neither of them grew up on the mainland Um, and that's definitely filtered into my own understanding of my own Chineseness too. There's no two ways of being. or there's no, there's no one way of being Chinese. There are millions, billions. (laughs) Um, and let's see in college, I, um, went to the university of North Carolina and I studied economics thinking that I wanted to go into like marketing or some kind of business oriented thing. And at the very last minute, I decided to double in psychology. I thought that psych was like I think the word that I used then was like, I think it's too flowery, and I think it, in a very like East Asian way, I'm like it's too soft, you know, compared to like a hard, hard, real, serious field like econ. Um, I'm very grateful to having both of those uh, backgrounds though because I th- I tend to think of things from an institutional kind of macro point of view mm-hmm. of these systems, but also, okay, what's going on individually for the person in terms of their emotions and how they think about themselves um. After I graduated, I worked for a law firm as a paralegal, and I really had no idea what I wanted to do. But it was a um, it was a class action based law firm, which was pretty fun. Uh, we would represent different classes of people who were suing different groups. A lot of federal government lawsuits um, on behalf of um, Native American farmers and ranchers, and women who had been discriminated based on gender, and um, folks who were in um, uh, jobs where they weren't getting properly paid the overtime that they deserved. And so there was sort of this social justice element to my work at that point. Um, I still wasn't sure exactly where to go. So then I did a master's degree at NYU, and that was in general psychology. And the, those two years I really used to do research, to be a research assistant. I jumped on various different research projects that were going on. Some of them were interviewing foster families and, and foster siblings, and understanding sibling relationships um and those experiences were really um fun slash hard i think i really enjoyed being um being in the world being in the field and again with the paralegaling the most enjoyable part of that job was really talking to the class the class members on the phone they would tell me their stories and i could stay on the fun with them for, for forever um and i enjoyed the law part but I felt like I wasn't just, I wasn't uh, argumentative enough to be like really in the weeds for all the issues that were there. And I also totally respected the lawyers that I was working with. Um, So after being at NYU, then I decided to pursue a PhD. And uh, that's when I went to Boston College and pursued a counseling psychology PhD. So counseling psychology is kind of a, a specific brand of clinical psychology that does do a lot of focus on sociological variables and systems and how that impacts wellness and health. Um, And uh, it was there that I started to develop an expertise in Asian American identity, Asian American mental health, and specifically Asian American race-related stress and racial trauma.
0: Hmm. Is that what you did your dissertation on? Or
1: Can you share more about that? Absolutely. Um, My dissertation focused on East Asian, US-born Americans. So Korean and Chinese Americans were born in the US. Um, were immediately connected to their mental and physical health systems. So how racism for these particular US foreign Asian-Americans um, was related to headaches, flushing, like feeling hot all over your body, stomach aches, digestive issues, back pain, chronic health stuff. I also looked at how our own racial identity, just how we feel about being Asian is also connected to physical health and mental health symptoms. So no hate crime has to happen for you to experience stress. You just have to experience your own internalized racism. You know, just all you have to do is be sitting and thinking how, huh, sometimes I wish I wasn't Asian for you to actually experience stomach aches and and emotional emotional pain, um, which was really fascinating to me that it's kind of like stereotype threat and imposter phenomenon, all these different Ways that we can embody um, racism without without a perpetrator next to us. You know, it just has to be how we're thinking about it that it becomes stressful. Um,
0: so prior to you doing doing this uh, dissertation, has there had had there been, and has there since been a lot of uh, specific research done on Asian Americans and um, kind of the psychological aspect of their upbringing?
1: Yeah, I think that um, more and more. That is definitely um, something that people are interested in researching. Um, the The beginning of the Asian American Psychological Association was only in like 1972. I think it's it's either 1972 or 1976. But just knowing that it's only been like a slim 40, 50 years that we've been really talking about the Asian American yeah. experience. Um, so this is relatively new, um, and there certainly are is a, a wonderful world of Asian American psychological researchers out there that have been promoting you know the under just the the need to understand Asian American mental health um, for this this time. and I think in the zeitgeist, you can feel it you know people are really talking about specifically for Asian Americans, we need to talk about the stigma and what the racial experience is like and how this is stressful. what are Asian American experiences of stress um, and I know like activists like Jeremy Lin and a couple other folks have really out of themselves saying, you know, this is something we all struggle with. Um, this needs to be a conversation. I think that the research um, has gone, to, uh, there's been a lot more research that's about racial experiences, that's about sub-ethnic groups and how mm-hmm. those ethnic communities experience being Asian differently. So there's a lot about colonial mentality, for example, for all of these, Communities that have been colonized. There's histories of imperialism in the in in Asia, whether that's the Philippines, whether that's India, other countries, and how that mentality kind of can infect your experience, mm-hmm. and how you experience being Asian differently than maybe East Asians that have not had as much. I mean, that's not true for everybody, but maybe there's a different experience for, colon- for of colonization, for example, for South Koreans, and there is for Filipino Americans. Um, there's also a lot of talk about. How brown Asians, for example, experience a different type of um, race-related experience in the U.S. than East Asians. Um, we're just we're treated differently. There's a legacy of the of Islamophobia and being treated as like a terrorist if you're brown, um, or that you're dangerous, or that you're you're poor and that, that you're classless if you have darker skin. Just in colors and experience, you know, exists in all of our communities, and these kinds of dialogues, I think, are being researched a lot more um, across um, the Asian American like kind of mental health research community.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you have any uh, recommended resources or places to start for people who actually want to go deeper into the research and the science? Would you
1: suggest the Asian
0: American Psychological Association as the best place to start or another resource?
1: I would say that that's the number one resource. They have a bunch of fact sheets on their websites. Um, There's, if you have access to journals, you can use Google Scholar to look up different different uh, research articles, but there is an Asian American Journal of Psychology, AHAP. And again, it's very new. It's only in the last seven years, really, that it's been around. Um, but they folk, I mean, there are four or five or six articles there four times a year that are, it's really pushing out the most, um, the newest and the most innovative stuff right now in terms of Asian American mental health. So I'd, yeah, I would encourage people to check it out.
0: Great. Thank you. And, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, taking care of oneself. Mm-hmm. How do you, Dr. Liu, take care of yourself? You are running your private practice, working at HCAP, um, yeah. living in New York uh, during this <laughs> point in time. How, how have you been doing and what do you do yeah. to ba- balance your life and also make sure that you're taking care of yourself before you can take care of others?
1: Yeah, I love this question. When I, mean, I think that I saw a meme at some point. It was like, Self-care, real self-care is not bubble baths and chocolate cake. It's creating a life that you don't need to constantly escape from. I cannot remember who wrote mm. this, but I like it that it is so long-term, the idea of self-care. Um, it can't be a one-shot thing. Certainly, I will eat all the chocolate cake and I will do all the post masks <laughs> and I will take the bubble baths and go and exercise, but cultivating a life that doesn't feel actively toxic towards yourself is like a lifelong skill. Um, I did do some work with some colleagues of mine up at Boston College where we created, in in thinking about this last week of being Asian-American in particular, we created what we called the Racial Recovery Plan. Um, And it's something you can also Google, just look at ISPRC, Racial Recovery Plan. Um, It's kind of a step-by-step guide to cultivating a healthy racial identity and having a sense of self-care on a daily basis before some kind of crisis can happen, whether that's racialized or not. thinking on a day-to-day basis, like what I do, I try to meditate, I exercise, I try to cook new things. It's kind of like your typical stuff. Um, I do think and talk about being Asian American uh, a fair amount with friends, um, and in in particular, not just with my Asian American friends. I think that a a lot of times we've kind of been in this, um, we've kind of hidden these parts of ourselves. And because we've been forced to. I think we don't want to seem like outsiders. And for fear of xenophobia, for fear of seeming like un-American, we kind of hide these really important, integral, deeply rich parts of ourselves. So talking about that more with with people wherever wherever I am, um, whoever I'm in space with is important. I also want to make a plug for Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor Feelings. This book like broke my brain open. <laughs> I felt like she, she was articulating something I had been Really craving to hear, um, and I, I never heard that story told back to me about my own life in that way. And so, um, I encourage you all to read that too.
0: Yeah, it's such a great book, and it's like yeah. sometimes it's like that's my life. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, a lot of us are like, "What? I would have nothing to write about if I were to write a book." And then when you yeah. see somebody write it and articulate it so well, it's uh-huh. like. Thank goodness that um, you know we have these artists and writers who capture really a lot of our feelings and zeitgeist. So yeah. um, that's great. So meditation, um, talking, that, sharing with friends, yeah. acknowledging your identity.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, for sure. Taking care
0: of your physical health as well. So
1: yeah, I think like yeah. I'm, a lot of folks will ask, you know, I'm having a panic attack. What do I do? Or I'm having the worst, you know, OCD symptoms. Or I'm just really in a dark place today. I think moving your body and going outside for me. Is one of the most important. Just um, even if I hate all 35 minutes of the walk, the mandatory walk I'm going on because of COVID. When I get back, usually it's like, well, I, I did something. You know, like I think moving, shifting your body into a different state can be oftentimes yes,
0: the most important. Yeah, and like we kind of kicked off the conversation talking about how our feelings and psychology impacts our body. The I think yes. reverse is true too. To your point, yes.
1: right? Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, So just kind of uh, love to end with um, some uh, hearing some advice um, that you might have to share with the listeners who might be earlier in their career trying to figure out Mm -hmm. what they wanna do. It seems pretty clear to me at least that you found work that is meaningful to you, that energizes you and that obviously is super valuable to the community. Um, Mm -hmm. How would you advise somebody to think about uh, their career if they're still trying to figure things out maybe like what you were doing in your undergrad?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think opening your, I mean, it's going to sound really generic, opening yourself up to as many experiences as possible and noticing what are the things that you do not get bored by. Um, I think that a lot of times I'll ask you this in in graduate school, like if you're going to choose a dissertation topic, you better not get bored by it. You know, like what is something that really keeps you inspired for the long haul? And for me, being Asian American and thinking about the Asian American experience as, as children of immigrants, as, as, very different ethnic community. All of these things together is just constantly fascinating to me. Um, and I know that in, in undergrad, a lot of times you're taking these courses and it's like, I don't know, this is fine. Everything is fine. You know, what am I actually passionate about? Um, it's a hard question to answer. I think being patient with yourself to um, allow for that journey to kind of unfurl out on its own. I I had no idea I would be in this position right now with HCAP and in my private practice. I I felt like it took a long time for those pieces to come together. I mean, even like, okay, haphazardly majoring in these two majors and then, and then doing the law firm stuff and then going for this master's degree, I still had no idea. And that's okay. You know, like I'm just trying things out and none of it's wasted time. Um, It might feel like a luxury for a lot of people who are trying to make that money as soon as possible. I get that. Um, But I think giving myself that time did allow me to find the thing that I'm most passionate about. And Who knows where I'll be in like five or 10 years? I I have maybe some thoughts about hoping where that could be, but trying to afford yourself just that grace and generosity, I think is the most important.
0: It's great advice, especially for our community, which is very much geared towards checkboxing, right? And going through life, getting the best resume you can, getting the most compensation, minimizing your risk. Um, But oftentimes at the cost of following your curiosity and doing something that energizes you in a, you know, day to day basis. So um, great to see it's, it's worked out. I think it's worked out really well for you. So uh, it is really awesome advice. Um, for those who want to connect with you or maybe even um, potentially see you as, as a uh, client, what's the best way for folks to get in touch?
1: Sure thing. Um, they can email me. My email is dr dr M-A-R-C-I-A, Lu, L-I-U, at Gmail. Not a Googler. Simple.
0: You're the only Doctor <laughs> Marsha Liu at Gmail. You got the, you're the first one.
1: That's all right. That's great. <laughs> Version 1.0. Yeah,
0: that's prime property. I'm Justin <laughs> Pang. I'm Justin Pang eight. So there are at least uh, seven. There
1: are already eight just <laughs> Good to know. Yeah.
0: But yeah. Um, fun fact: I did email the Justin Pang at Gmail the other day just to be yeah. like, "Hey, are you still? Do you wanna? Are you are you still using it? Do you it? Yeah. <laughs> I got no response. I got no response. <laughs> Um, but yeah, just wanted to, number one, thank you for your time, Dr. Lee, I know, especially now, time is uh, super precious. And more importantly, thank you for everything you are doing for the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Um, the work that you're doing, the research that you're you're working on as well is super helpful to help everybody understand more about themselves. I know it certainly has helped me. And also ultimately, like how we can have a positive ripple effect in the world. So uh, thank you so much for all that you do.
1: For sure.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Justin. Thanks, Dr. Liu. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends. Leave me a review on iTunes or drop me a note on our website, AsianTechLeaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well. Stay healthy and follow your heart. See you soon.